Cities are a microcosm of what happens around the rest of the globe. The terrain of struggle for justice, for social justice, is happening in, in the city and in the countryside, and it's beginning to link. I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to City Road. And this is episode three of our partnership with the Sydney Policy Lab. I'm Isabel Napier from the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. We've teamed up with City Road Podcast to take you to the spaces and places where democracy happens. We're talking about food and social movements and how the two are coming together to address some of the environmental injustices in our cities. Food, as it happens, is everywhere to be found in these spaces. It's often the glue that binds us together and that reminds us that we live side by side. Today we're joined by a guest who's spent decades exploring, questioning, and ultimately transforming the way that we eat. Eric Holt-Menez is a world-leading political economist and agroecologist. Based in California, he directs Food First, an institute that works to end the injustices that cause hunger through research, education, and action. Eric, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. The first one is you've written a lot about the disappearing public sphere. What role does food play in cities in particular in helping us cherish it, claw it back, reclaim it? So the last 30 years of neoliberal policies have not just privatized our schools, our communications, our public services, um, everything. It's sort of privatized our society, and it has eroded the public sphere. The public sphere isn't the public sector, though it contributes to the public sector. The public sphere is that place where we come together as citizens and make decisions and debate on what it is we want to do. In other words, we decide how we want to produce, consume, and we don't leave that up to the market to decide for us. So because the market has become so powerful, what that means is that those who have the most market power get to make all the decisions. And what we need to do is rebuild the public sphere so that citizens can make the decisions and not corporations. And this isn't an easy task. So where do we see the public sphere being reconstructed? And one of the places is in the food system because you see farmers markets, community supported agriculture, farm to school programs, all of these are expressions of people taking power away from the market and putting it back into the hands of the citizenry in order to make decisions about our food. And we'll get to the city in a minute, but first, let's start on the farm. I did grow up uh, milking cows and pitching hay for somebody else. I was a farm worker. It wasn't our farm. I put myself through college doing farm work uh, during the summers, and um, I have to say that one of the reasons I went to college was so I could get off the farm. Uh, very hard work, very poorly paid, and very lonely work, actually, for all the romanticizing we do about it. But after I got out of college, I ended up traveling to Latin America and fell in with a, a farmer's movement, a peasant movement, for agroecology, for sustainable agriculture. And so I ended up back on farms again, but this time basically uh, working with peasant farmers to improve their farming systems 
and to break the vicious cycle of industrial agriculture, which had penetrated peasant farming around the world and, and very much in Latin America, and was driving them broke, destroying their soils, dropping their yields, and uh, driving them to migration, actually. So they were, in a, uh, they were very much in, a, in an ecological and social and economic crisis when I arrived. And very sort of um, methodically, we began finding you know, organic ways, agroecological ways of recovering the agroecosystems, those farming systems. And it was very successful. Um, because it was farmer to farmer. It was farmers teaching other farmers, most of whom were semi-literate, you know, and so they learned by example. Uh, in fact, only trusted examples. Didn't really trust books, didn't really trust experts, and with good reason. It was the experts that sent them down the road of what we call the Green Revolution, which was fertilizers and pesticides and high-yielding, supposedly high-yielding variety seeds. So I got in on the on the ground floor of this movement, which swept Latin America. I went down for six months and ended up staying 25 years. Uh, and I think what really convinced me to stay was just the indomitable hope and enthusiasm of these very, very poor farmers who we think about being marginal, but who in fact, um, as I learned later when I began to, to study the political economy of food in the world, produce most of our food. Most of our food is not produced by, you know, high-yielding industrial agriculture. Only 15% is produced by industrial agriculture. Something like 70-75% is produced by very poor farmers around the world, most of whom are women, working on very small plots of land, but working very intensively. So if asked what's wrong with our food systems, I'd wager that most people would, without too much effort, begin to reel off this laundry list of, of problems with the way that we eat that we're all sort of aware of. Obesity, monocultures, pesticides, waste, malnutrition, labor. Uh, some might say we can't grow enough food to feed the world. Some would say we grow too much. It's just not in the right places. You, as you've just told us, are embedded in the food system in ways that other people are not. You've spoke about the vicious cycle of industrial agriculture. So I wonder when someone asks you, what's wrong with our food systems? What's the laundry list of things that comes to mind? Yeah, well, if we really sort of have boil it down, what's wrong with our food systems is that we overproduce. Something like one in seven or one in five people in the world are going hungry uh, or food insecure or malnourished. And this includes developed countries, by the way, not just um, poor countries. And so the sort of response over the last half century has always been, well, we need to produce more food because the assumption is that people go hungry because of scarcity. And in fact, what we found time and time again, starting 40 years ago, is that, no, we overproduce food. We're producing one and a half times more than enough food to feed every man, woman, and child on the planet and have done so for at least the last four or five decades. Um, so it's not a lack of food. Uh, why do people go hungry? Well, they can't afford to buy the food which is being produced. And then one has to ask, well, why are they so poor? Um, and, you know, there's not a poor gene. Poverty is a social condition. And so you look at why people are poor, and it's really a system of injustice. People don't have enough resources. People aren't paid enough as wages. People don't have enough access to land or water or health, education, welfare, these types of things. And so they end up being very poor and 
are forced to either go hungry because they can't afford the food or to buy this cheap processed food, which is produced by the uh, industrial food system, which we call the corporate food regime. And that, of course, unleashes all kinds of problems like diet-related disease and hidden hunger and this type of thing, which we suffer both in the North and the Global South, in developed countries and underdeveloped countries. So Eric says our food system is broken, that we're overproducing food, and that the poor and marginalized are producing the bulk of our food globally. But if you think it's broken, then you have to ask, well, when did it work right? So let's see. Did it work right during the periods of slavery and colonialism? Did it work right during the periods of convict labor? So the system is not broken at all. The system is working precisely as a capitalist food system is supposed to work. It extracts resources and wealth. It concentrates power and wealth and basically tosses off the social and environmental externalities to everybody else. So the system's not broken. So the problem then is the system itself is what we have to change. So often we approach problems in society in these sort of technocratic ways and, and we say it would be easy, not easy, but easy mentally for us to look at food, they're not being enough, and to produce more. You've just outlined all the reasons why that's not the problem. So what needs to change in the way that we're approaching systemic change, in the way that we're approaching the problems that we face broadly? Well, aside from recognizing what the, 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 the problem really is, the capitalist system of production, which tends to overproduce everything, including food, I think that we have to look at the specific injustices and populations which are suffering those injustices. Um, because they're not sitting around with their arms folded. They're actually responding. They're, and they're not just trying to survive. Because of the fact that capitalism is driving us to the brink environmentally and socially and economically for so much of the world's population, people are organizing. And one of the places that they're organizing is around food. And so we have what's called the food sovereignty movement. And that basically means that we take back control over our food systems. It's about democratizing our food systems in favor of the poor. So given that we're on City Road, what role do cities where so many people live side by side, cluster together, play in safeguarding, creating these public spaces for democracy to thrive and continue into the future? Right. Well, I mean, Cities are, are growing and, and the world population is becoming much more urban, and uh, depending on how you measure a city or a town. But we're more urban than rural now than we were before. So cities are very important. It's also important to note that 15% of the world's food is grown in cities, and that's significant. And the other thing significant about that fact is that most of that food is grown by poor people for poor people. And this is generally true of the 70% of the food grown by peasants around the world. And actually, it's women feeding most of the world, poor women feeding most of the world. Now, it's not like they're living well. And so you get tremendous amounts of out-migration from the countryside into the city. But you get migration back as well. So it's not just a one-way flow. In fact, what's happening more and more is you're getting these two-way demographic flows from, from town to country and country to town. And so now you're seeing the, the blurring of the divide between city and country. You're seeing people in Brazil, for example, the landless workers movement puts people on the land, invades parcels of abandoned land, and then demands that the government provide them with a title, either to that land or some other land. Where do most of those people come from? They come from the city. So you have this sort of repeasantization of the countryside going on at the same time in many parts of the countryside is being emptied out 
to make way for industrial agriculture. This is a very violent process, by the way. It's not like it comes about or some sort of individual choice or agreement. And so what that means is that the terrain of struggle for justice, for social justice, is happening in, in the city and in the countryside, and it's beginning to link. When you think about the United States or Australia, for example, how many people are actually on the land? Well, less than 2% of the population in both cases. In the United States, we have more people in prison than we have on the land. So who is going to advocate for sustainable agriculture? Farmers can advocate all they like. There's not enough of them to make a difference. That means that consumers, city folks, have to advocate. So, Eric, could you tell us where the places are in cities that this is all playing out? Who's suffering? How are they suffering? And what does that look like? So cities are a microcosm of what happens around the rest of the globe. So if you look into cities, you'll find some very affluent neighborhoods where people can afford to eat very well and can afford to eat healthily food. And then you'll find some very poor neighborhoods where most services are bad, where people are eating very badly. And you see the indices of diet-related disease, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, etc., are just off the charts. People are dying because of the cheap processed food that they're forced to eat in order to survive. And you see hidden hunger uh, right alongside obesity, for example. This concentrates in what we call underserved communities and what some people call food deserts. And in places where it's really hard to get fresh, healthy food. And when you do, it's prohibitively expensive. So because the health costs are so high for these families, many of them have turned to producing their own food. And so you see a lot of community gardens, just a tremendous amount of work of people trying to take back control over their food system by producing healthy food for their children and for themselves. You're listening to City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. And we're talking about how food production links the countryside to the city. And it's not just about food production, it's also about citizenship. Yeah, this question of citizenship is, uh, I think, central. Because what I mean by citizenship is not just that one has a passport to a particular country and, and has the right to vote in a particular country, though it does mean that. We, we don't want to give that up, of course. But we talk about agrarian citizenship, for example, which means stewardship in, in large degree, which means accountability for how we grow things and how, how we produce food and how we distribute and, and consume food. Citizenship in the sense that food is political, that the production and consumption of food is political, and so that we need to engage politically in our food system if we want to change it, not just through our pocketbook. Is this the big moment of change? Is our social, political, economic system about to be transformed? Are there historical models to look to, and what does it behoove us to do in this unique moment in time? Well, thank you for that large, overarching question. Um, yes, we are. The history of capitalism and democracy is marked by the liberalization and freeing up of markets. And in these periods of liberalization, you see tremendous concentration of wealth, not necessarily economic growth, 
but a lot of concentration of wealth. Um, but you also see a lot of disenfranchisement, dispossession, growth of poverty, destruction of natural resources, because you've essentially taken the gloves off the market. You let the market do whatever it wants. What followed, on one hand, was the New Deal in the United States, which was replicated in other places around the world, where the government restricted production and the government insured incomes and put people back to work, went into the public purse to put people back to work. In other words, the government intervened in the market quite heavily in order to rebuild society and to end some unemployment and whatnot. But it's the people and social movements that bring about social and political change. And I have to say that um, it's happening on small scales all around. And I can give you big examples and small examples. And just looking at the food movement, uh, one sees this. One sees this convergence. So, for example, the food sovereignty movement led by La Via Campesina, which is a peasant federation with over 200 million members around the world, has formed a powerful alliance with the World March of Women. And why? Well, from the World March of Women's perspective, because most of the farmers in the world are women, unless we have food sovereignty, we can't ensure women's rights. And from the point of view of La Via Campesina, because most of the farmers in the world are women, we can't have food sovereignty unless we end all violence against women. You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. If you like the show, you can find us at cityroadpod.org.